Well, again, good morning to you all. One. I got one. Good morning to everyone. Good morning. Before I start, I apparently need to make one very important uh, detail clear for tonight. We're not providing dinner for everyone. This is an opportunity for everyone to come at five and bring your own dinner and eat alongside others. So I'm glad my wife pointed that error out to me. There have been a lot of frustrated people this evening, perhaps. So still come, please, uh, but please bring your own meal and enjoy it alongside us. With that being said, please open up your Bibles to Genesis very pleased to be back in our study in Genesis 1 through 11 this morning. We'll be making our way through most of the creation account this morning. But as we do so, we'll begin by reading just a short introduction of it in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. You can follow along with me as I read. There we read these words. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. This is the word of God. Please be seated. I don't know how many of you have ever watched the show, The Joy of Painting. The giggles tell me at least some of you have. But many of you have at least seen a picture of the celebrity that hosted that show for so many years, that celebrity being the artist Bob Ross. Bob Ross was on this just cheap-as-can-be art show that aired, I think, largely just on PBS from 1983 through 1994. There were over 400 episodes of this very, very basic, incredibly simplistic show that said only consisted of a black curtain as the backdrop, uh, an easel with canvas, and then Bob Ross, this hippie-looking figure with his afro puffed out, who was, by all means... uh, fairly odd character. Despite how strange he was, this show gained a cult following, both in the years that it aired as well as in the the many years that have since passed when it was canceled. The love that people had for the show of Bob Ross was in part an appreciation for the paintings that he would teach you how to paint, but in large part the love really revolved around the painter himself, Bob Ross. People loved the way that he so gently spoke to his audience. They loved the cheesy things he would say, like, maybe we'll put a happy little tree here. Isn't that nice? And he would quietly speak of his happy trees or his happy clouds that he called the freest things in all of nature. Bob Ross was famous for saying things like, we don't make mistakes, we have happy accidents. And throughout each and every one of his episodes and and teaching episodes, Bob Ross would encourage everyone with a basic reminder that there was an artist inside all of us. And countless people watched week in and week out and continue to watch online today, even though they have no interest in doing the actual painting. They watch because they love the artist. They're amazed by his personality, by the gentleness that comes through. They're genuinely encouraged by who he is, as well as 
what he's able to accomplish and create. As we look at the familiar story of Genesis 1 today, it's important to to come into it with that same level of appreciation, that same level of understanding. And that Genesis 1 is not first and foremost, or not only simply, just a, a story or history about where we come from. It is a display of the most magnificent piece of artwork ever created. A piece of artwork that is so grand, so magnificent, that it should cause any individual to step back in just awe and appreciation and wonder. And most importantly, it is a story, it is a piece of artwork that is ultimately incredible and awe-inspiring to us, not because of the artwork itself, although it is grand, but because of the artist and what the artwork declares about the artist, what it shows about this infinitely greater and comparable artist who is God, our creator. As we look at this story today then, we see truly a story that regardless of how familiar it might be to some of you, is still unbelievably inspiring, unbelievably encouraging. For it is not simply just a story of how we came into be, it is a glimpse of that incomparable creator. And in that glimpse, we are in fact reminded who we are, but we're also reminded of why we are, that is, why we're to live. And most beautifully of all, it's a picture of where we're intended to dwell. And so my prayer as we look at this text this morning is we might experience that sense of awe and wonder that it should inspire in all of us. And in so doing, might we not just have a better appreciation of creation, but a greater appreciation of the creator. That being said, let me open us up in a time of prayer and we'll dig into this story. Father in heaven, as we begin our time today, we acknowledge that we're reading a story that is perhaps incredibly familiar to, to many people in the sanctuary this morning, God. And in that familiarity, there is always the danger of checking out as we cover something that many of us probably assume, well, we, we know this already. Why are we going over this again? And so, God, I pray that you remove that, that sense of boredom that can come with familiarity. I pray that we might read these words that Moses pens in Genesis 1 with a new sense of awe and wonder. Might we see the details as they unfold in the same way that the original audience must have heard. Might we read it as children with a greater appreciation of the narrative and with a greater appreciation of the one who tells the story, ultimately you, God. As always, God, our prayer this morning is for those of, of us in here who do not yet know you. We pray that you bring them to a point of saving faith in you. Might they be humbled by the story of creation. Might they be properly struck with awe for you, the creator, And might they in turn place their faith in you and your son. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, might this be a time of encouragement, a time of a much-needed reminder of our origin, and a time of much-needed reminder of where we are ultimately intended to dwell and how that must impact our daily life here. We praise you, God, and we love you. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, as our story opens up, It opens up in the details that oftentimes we can gloss over, for it doesn't open up in the most beautiful of settings. We see that setting once again in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. There again we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters." 
the story of creation then opens not up with a, with a picture of paradise, but it opens up rather in, in a wasteland. A wasteland that would have carried with it a great deal of familiarity to really all audiences in that ancient Near East. Both for those outside of Israel, that is people in Sumeria, people in Babylon, elsewhere, as well as for the Hebrew people themselves. You see, it's familiar to those people in the ancient Near East outside of the Hebrew people because if you read other ancient Near Eastern stories of creation, they too open up with this imagery of a wasteland. They too open up with this imagery of of something that is void, something that is uninhabitable. And stories like the Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh, these other societies tell stories of a variety of gods like Marduk and Tiamat and many others, coexisting with this pre-existent matter just floating out in space. They too begin their stories then with this picture of a wasteland and then their stories unfold and describe how this long cast of characters, these many gods of chaos and darkness and light and fear and peace, how they ultimately, despite the warring, despite the disagreements, how ultimately they find creation as they know it come forth. And so for the person of the ancient Near East who's reading perhaps the story of Genesis for the first time, they would find a certain sense of familiarity with this language. They understand the concept of some ancient wasteland. And they too might wonder, okay, well, how do the Israelites say that the creation came about from this wasteland? How do they say it happens? For the Hebrew people, that wasteland carried with it an extra sense of familiarity, didn't it? For again, if we remember where these Israelites, where these Hebrew people were when they first read this story, we understand and quickly remember that for them, the idea of wasteland, or perhaps, to use a word more familiar, wilderness, carried with it a great level of importance to them. For if you recall in our introduction a few weeks ago, When Moses penned these words originally, he wrote them when they still were in that wilderness. When they still lived in an uninhabitable wasteland, that wasteland which they had wandered through for 40 years. The original audience of Genesis then, when they read about this wasteland, this wilderness, their minds no doubt immediately go to their own wilderness, to their own wasteland, as they themselves are eagerly looking ahead to their own paradise. And so for those original Hebrew people, for those original Israelites, the language of the wilderness carried with it not just a sense of importance because of where they've come from, but because of where they were currently living and where they were hoping to eventually enter into. For them, the question concerning what God would do with the wilderness was not just a question of ancient history, but a question of their present struggle. How could God get them out of this present wilderness and into this land that's supposedly flowing with milk and honey? How could he take them from this place of of struggle to that place of life, abundant? For them then, this wasteland was incredibly familiar and it set up that central question to their everyday lives. Indeed, as we begin this story today, while we do not live in a similar wasteland or wilderness, and we are thankful for that, we live in a world in which sometimes it can seem quite chaotic, quite formless. 
And so daily in the midst of our own struggles, the question remains, okay, how can God redeem this? How can God bring me out of this? And that way, we can understand the tension of the creation narrative. We can understand the significance of this initial story and even of this initial context, that wasteland. Now, of course, if you are critical of the Bible, or if you're tempted to just shrug the story off, it's, it's tempting to, to point out the familiarity of this language and, and show how it's really no different from any other ancient Near Eastern creation tale. In fact, some of you have perhaps heard unbelievers suggest this sort of thing, that our creation story is no different from the countless other creation stories that all these other ancient cultures have. It's the same story with just a few plot twists here and there, but, but ultimately, aren't we all the same? Ultimately, isn't this just another attempt of man to figure out where they came from? And while that critique and that question might sound initially fair and perhaps even tempting to believe, what we must understand is that very quickly, in fact, immediately, even within these first couple verses, as seemingly familiar as this language is, what we must appreciate as believers is this story is immediately incredibly different from any other tale. It is categorically different from any other ancient Near Eastern creation tale. And that difference stems not from the presence of just a wilderness, nor does it necessarily stem from the ultimate picture of creation. The greatest difference from this story, and really the most important point we must hone in on, is the revelation of the Creator Himself. And the way that the Creator is described, and the way that incomparable artist is revealed. And already in these first two verses, and of course throughout the remaining portion of Genesis 1, we see so many details regarding that artist that are brought out that, that show him to be infinitely greater than anyone else. Exponentially more impressive than any other so-called God. So much more beautiful, so much more complex. And while we might not have picked up on some of those details upon our first reading, when we look back at Genesis 1, 1 through 2, we see some of those details immediately come out. That's where we move to our second point as we describe what Genesis is saying about this incomparable creator. And there's a lot of attributes we can explore regarding God in this chapter, but I just want to start with a few to again show how this text is so different. The first is the fact that Genesis 1 is clearly declaring that the artist of Genesis is himself eternal. That is to say, God has always been God, and he alone has always filled that, that position. We see the same idea brought about numerous times throughout Scripture, one of those times being in Psalm. In fact, if you would, turn over to Psalm 90. For in Psalm 90, we see Moses himself speak of that eternality of God and how it makes him different from everyone and, and, and everything else. In Psalm chapter 90, we have this, this great prayer of Moses, the same man who wrote Genesis. In this prayer, Moses is offering a, a praise to God. And as he does this, he writes these words in Psalm 90, beginning in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
Now, if you grew up in church or have read through the Psalms, that language might not strike you as all that surprising. We understand that the Bible clearly presents God as an eternal being. But what we oftentimes miss is how different this was from, from any other religion. For if you recall, in passing, I mentioned those other creation myths that people like the Babylonians taught. And in all of those other ancient myths, the gods coexisted with this pre-existent matter. Meaning, the gods were never alone. There was always someone else. There was always something else alongside them. But the God of Genesis 1 is categorically different. Again, read verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God existed, nothing else. In the beginning, God spoke everything else into being, into existence. In the beginning, there was only God. God is thus eternal. Not only that, but a second point that is so key and distinguishes this creator from everyone else is the fact that the God of Scripture is one. That is to say, he does not exist alongside a, a long list of other so-called gods. He alone is God. Again, we see this point highlighted time and time again throughout Scripture. In another passage penned by Moses, you don't need to turn here, but in Deuteronomy chapter 6, as God is reminding his people or speaking to his people of how they are to live, we find that famous Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where God, speaking through Moses, opens up with these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Based upon that proclamation of God's deity, God's unique uh, nature, God then speaks of the commands that he hands down. And if you recall those Ten Commandments, you might remember how important that, that oneness of God is. For it's because of that that God's able to say, do not have any other gods before me, do not worship anyone else, I alone am God. This was not simply true in Deuteronomy, it was true from the very beginning in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Now, having said that, of course, we must make mention of the fact that in verse 2, Moses does speak of this other figure involved in creation, namely the Spirit of God. In verse 2, we read that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Some might be confused to read about the Spirit of God when I've just said that the God is one. But it's important to note, of course, that as we read throughout the rest of Scripture, that the Bible is consistent in this language, that language being that God is one, but he exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as you read throughout all of Scripture, you see that, that all three persons in the Trinity are actually involved in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. We see the Father and the Spirit at work here, and we see the Son at work as revealed in later passages like John 1. So having said that, it's important not to get confused, but to still see that while this text might look initially familiar to some, it is different. And the fact that the God of Genesis is eternal, and the fact that the God of Genesis is one, there are no warring gods competing with him. Perhaps most significantly, as we see throughout the book of Genesis, chapter 1 at least, is how incomparable the same God is when it comes to his power. This is already put on display in verse 1 and will continue to be put on display throughout this entire chapter. We see that, that incomparable power in the means of creation. 
For again, looking at verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As we continue to go through the text, we'll see how God creates by means of his spoken word. There is nothing, God speaks, and there is everything. There is darkness, God speaks, and there is light. The language many of you know that heard when learning about creation is that language of ex nihilo, which is just a fancy way of saying that God creates from nothing. He doesn't need a toolbox to work from. He doesn't need clay to shape into into trees and mountains. God simply thinks that he speaks and it's there. We cannot fathom that level of power. We cannot fathom what that must take. And even as we look at other creation tales, we see no one else even attempts to, to claim this level of power from their own gods. But throughout Genesis chapter 1, that That power of God is so clearly on display as time and time again it tells us God speaks and it was so. God speaks and it was so. Whatever God wants, God does. He needs no one else. He needs nothing else. He simply speaks and there is something. That power is put further on display in so many other ways in this chapter and we'll explore some of these later. But we see it and passing in the way that God shows this level of control over creation. For as we will see, God designs things to live within certain boundaries, certain parameters. God's able to speak great wild animals to existence, but say, yeah, you're only going to live here. Yes, I'm creating you, but you can only do this, you can only do that. God has complete control then over everything that he creates. Not only that, the same power is on display in his judgment of creation. We read this earlier in our opening. When after creating light, we see in verse 3, God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. We see the same language throughout Genesis 1. That is this language of judgment. Where the creator not only brings it into existence, but he declares it to be good. Meaning he alone can say whether or not it does what it was intended to do. Power of God is put on display in so many other ways. But one final way I'll mention for now. That final way being perhaps the most controversial I think to to many believers today. But that is the time that God is able to create all these things in. As we read through Genesis 1 time and time again... Moses uses the language of days. There was morning, there was night, the first day throughout these six days of creation. This is the language that Moses used. And and there's some debate over what Moses means when he says day. Some believers suggest that, that Moses is just using this as a sort of symbol to show sequence, to show order, to show basic detail. And while I think some genuine believers can disagree about this, of course, and perhaps some of you in here have that belief. I believe the most straightforward reading of Genesis is that when Moses says day, he means day. He means 24 hours. And within these 24-hour periods, God is speaking all of these things into existence. I believe this for a number of reasons. Main point being, I think it's the most straightforward reading of the text, but I think we see other defenses of it in the creation of the Sabbath, something we'll talk about next week. We see it in in books like Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, when Moses reminds the people of God that in six days God created everything. And we'll see its importance, of course, come up again later on in Genesis 3 when we speak of man and we speak of the fall. 
Again, I'm not delving into all the details here, but I just say it now because I think it is yet another glorious picture of this incomparable power of the creator of the universe. This power that does not require, again, some set of tools. This, this power that does not require a, a great deal of time to pass. This power that is simply at his lips. Power that simply only requires God to speak. Power that is not found in anyone or anything else. Whether that anything else is some supposed God or, or man, some political ruler, ruler. No one can touch the power of the creator of Genesis. There are many other attributes we could list off that describe this creator as being so much more magnificent. Details we don't have time to get into this morning, but but one that I do want to mention in passing before we move on to the third point is how incomparable this God is when it comes to his sheer creativity. In the midst of, of studying passages like this, I think oftentimes, especially as we grow older, we lose sight of, of this basic detail. We lose sight of the glorious beauty that is being put on display. But I think if we just read a text like this as a child, as I think we should read it, that creativity, that beauty stands out in awe-inspiring detail. For as we'll see here in a moment, in these verses, we see this, this unbelievable level of creativity that God puts on display. We are reminded of the glorious colors of this creation. We're reminded of how complex each creature is. Even just yesterday, my family and I were driving up to St. Louis, and you know if you've driven up to St. Louis, there's really not a lot in between here and there. But I was struck in the drive as I just looked out for miles upon miles of just green trees as far as the eye could see. And it was amazing to think as I drove that drive and thought, God speaks and there's the color green. God speaks and there are trees. God speaks and there's the blue sky. It's an amazing thing to consider and even more amazing when you consider the animals that he speaks into existence, when you consider humanity that he creates. Just as we should be impressed by any talented artist with a paintbrush, we should be infinitely more impressed by the beauty and the talent of God that is being put on display here. Regardless of how many times we read the tale of creation in Genesis 1, we should never lose sight of that beauty. We should never be too quick to move past it. For it is a key point that is being made time and time again. It is a key way that God has chosen to reveal himself and his glory to us. And it's something then that again shows him to truly be incomparable when you put him next to any other religion, any other creation story that this world suggests. So much more could be said just from these first two verses. So much more could be said and will be said about this awe-inspiring artist. But in order to truly appreciate this artist, we of course have to examine his artistry. We have to examine that beautiful creation that he speaks into existence. And to do that, we turn now to verses 3 through 25 where we see that awe-inspiring artistry, that awe-inspiring work on display. Now as we go through these six days of creation, let me immediately state I, of course, will have not nearly enough time to delve into the countless details you can delve into in these days. 
And there are many of you that have no doubt studied these days far more than I have. And there are thankfully tons of great resources out there, one of them being uh, Bible Science Fellowship that, that our church supports that meets here. And I encourage you to research these things and delve into this more yourself. But in the time left to us this morning, I want us to just at least take a brief glance at this awe-inspiring work. And as we do so, what we'll see is as God creates, really he, he does this in, in two different movements. The first movement, days one through three, we can compare him to an artist preparing his canvas. Preparing this canvas for the final display of beauty, for the final picture that he is intending to present. In days four through six, then we'll see the artist fill that canvas in vivid detail. We begin then, in verses, or in days one through three, as the artist prepares his canvas. Follow along with me, and I'll go and read verses three through 13, and we'll see these first three days in order. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Here in these first three days, we see God taking the necessary steps to prepare his earth for creatures. We see God taking that wilderness which was uninhabitable and making it habitable, making it a proper home for his creatures to live in. And it begins really with, with three acts of division. The first act of division, the first act of creation that occurs there on the first day, is this division of light, that which we see in verses 3 through 5. Again, in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that wilderness, we read, God said, let there be light, and there was light. There are so many points in the story that I wish, I wish I could see. You can imagine standing in, in a great expanse of just pitch black darkness complete and utter silence in the midst of that complete darkness in the midst of that silence suddenly a voice rings out let there be light and there's light it's all brightened suddenly this light that seems to emanate from god himself fills every inch of creation suddenly you can see and God is able to divide this light from darkness. Later on, we'll see how God uses other creations to monitor, to guide that light and darkness. 
Immediately we see his power on display. Immediately we see this, this God beginning to paint this beautiful picture. Having done this and having called it good the first day, we move into the second day and we read, let there be expanse in the midst of the waters, let it separate the waters from the waters. And we have the creation of the atmosphere. We have the separation between water on the earth and water in the sky, that expanse which surrounds us. As we read this second day, we see not just a picture of God's power, but, but a picture of God's handiwork. For this language of expanse speaks of this idea of, of God mapping everything out, rolling out this expanse of the heavens. As if the artist has out his modeling clay and is, is carefully smoothing it out to make it look absolutely perfect, to make the setting absolutely perfect for the stars that he is about to hang you see the sort of language of expanse used in Job. In Job 37, in the midst of Elihu's speech, we read these words describing this act of creation. Job chapter 37, in verses 16 through 18, he says this to Job, Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds? The wonders of one perfect in knowledge, you whose garments are hot when the land is still because of the south wind, can you with him spread out the skies, strong as a molten mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot arrange our case because of darkness. Shall it be told to him that I would speak, or should a man say he would be swallowed up? Here we see this language. And not just of God speaking something into existence, but God creating it and and then again, carefully mapping it out, smoothing out his creation. And the way that an artist must stretch out his canvas and apply the special chemicals on it so that the paint sticks, so that the colors are vivid enough, so to God, in this grand display of his power and beauty, separates these great expanses of waters, meticulously prepares earth for that which is yet to come. And as he does this, we again read, verse 8, that God calls the expanse heaven. There was evening, there was morning, a second day. And we then move into this third day. This third day in which we read, beginning in verse 9, God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their own kind with seed in them. And it was so. As we move into the third day, then we see these really two acts of creation. The first being yet another act of division where God separates the waters from the lands. Or he, he makes it possible for there to both be creatures in the water as well as creatures on the land. Something pretty important for those of us who can't breathe underwater. As he does so, he can demonstrate his power. But not only that, in the second act of creation in day three, we see another very important detail that, that the author mentions regarding this creator. We see that God did not simply speak land and water into existence. He also populates the land with vegetation. Vegetation that he commands to be grown up from the ground. Vegetation we read that contains seed. Now, this language would be easy for us to gloss over because, well, we know plants have seed and we know how important that seed is for future plants. 
But it's important to take a quick moment and, and take stock of how important that detail is. Take stock of the fact that even in creating this, God is preparing for the future. God is creating something that will continue to repopulate. Something that can then be used for future generations for our survival to again make this place habitable. Not only that, as Moses introduces the word seed, he is introducing a word that will take on central importance as the story of Genesis continues, does he not? For it is that word seed that will then be used by Moses to not simply describe the future of of plant life, but the future of humanity. For just as God creates plants with that proper seed in them to then repopulate the earth, so too he creates humanity. And it's from that imagery of seed that that theme of a future Messiah will eventually come from. And so again, from the very beginning, we see that level of detail that, that the the author that the creator has in mind. We see furthermore this display of order as he creates specific types of trees, specific types of plants. We can see the fact that God creates these things according to their kind. He places boundaries, parameters around them. He tells them exactly what they are to grow and when they are to grow it. We see then again this level of detail that would be impossible for us to even imagine. Yet for God, it's immediate. For God, it is a part of his original good design. Because yet again, we see this creator doing a work that does not just speak of the beauty of creation, but it constantly reflects and causes us to look back to what this is saying about the creator. There's so much more that could be said about these first three days. And indeed, these first three days alone should cause us to marvel at God's goodness, to be amazed by his power, and yet, one could argue that days one through three pale in comparison to days four through six. For we've only caught the smallest of glimpses of what this God can do. For as the story of creation continues, we see God is not simply able to prepare a canvas and say, well, hope this works out. God then fills this canvas as an expert artist is able to fill his canvas in vivid detail with a creation that only he could possibly imagine. The detail is recorded in, in the next number of verses, beginning in verse 14 all the way through verse 25, where we will end this, this morning. In these verses, we see that painter filling his canvas in days four through the first half of day six. Just as we did with days one through three, then let us read these days in totality and begin to unpack what it declares about God. Beginning in verse 14, we read, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good. There was evening and morning on fourth day. God said, let the waters teem and swarm with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind and God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. 
Fill the waters and the seas. Let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning and fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind. And the cattle after their kind. And everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Again, as we read these verses, many of us are reading verses that we have read countless times before. And as such, we fail to appreciate how exponentially greater this is than any other creation story. For in each of these days, with each of these details, Moses is showing our God is infinitely superior than any other so-called God. No one can touch the power and beauty and majesty that he is putting on display It begins very clearly in day four as we see the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars. We live in a society today where the sun and moon and stars are are pretty significant. We understand the importance they play. But we cannot overlook how vitally important they were in that ancient Near East. For in those ancient Near Eastern cultures, the sun and the moon were not just impressive things to look at, they were gods to be worshipped. The Hebrew people would have known this well, for where had they been rescued out of? Egypt. And in Egypt, who was the giver of life? The sun god, Re, Ra. He was the chief god to be worshipped. In the same way, you read of other ancient cultures, and you see the moon had her own religions. The moon received her own sacrifices. The stars in that tale that I mentioned earlier, Numa Elish, play a prominent role in creation. And yet in Genesis, what are these so-called gods reduced to? Well, they're just things that God hangs in the expanse that he already created. They're objects that he speaks into existence and says, okay, I'm going to use this greater light, the sun that you worship, to light the day. I'm going to put the moon here, and the moon's going to bring light to the night, and the stars barely even get noticed. Oh yeah, he also created the stars also. Don't miss that. These objects that were worshipped in the ancient Near East are revealed to to be nothing more than a light bulb that the great creator is hanging. They are things truly of great beauty and majesty, but compared to the creator who brings them to existence, they're, they're nothing. Why on earth would you ever worship that instead of worshiping the one who creates that? It was a vital question for the people in the ancient Near East to ask, and it remains vitally important for us today. For even though we do not worship these celestial bodies, we still live in a world that that understands the significance they play. I mean, just think back to when that great lunar eclipse happened not too long ago. Remember that? That once-in-a-lifetime event? People flipped out over the eclipse. People were thrilled to take time out of their work day, to watch this full eclipse happen. And in the midst of it, if you experience it, you, you saw how unique, how special that was. And even for the devout atheist who has no belief in God, in that moment, they are reminded of how small they are. They're reminded of how insignificant they are compared to everything else. And how sad it is How many millions upon millions of people can observe that sun, can observe some great act in nature and fail to understand who put it all there? 
There's good reason why the psalmist in passages like, like Psalm 8 and speak of the greatness of the stars, the beauty of the sun, and is able to then reflect and say, what is man? What is man that you would think of me, God? Sun, moon, and stars still ought to play that same role today for us as they humble us, as they remind us of God's beauty, and as they remind us of, of how blessed we are that God would take notice of us. For nothing. And yet God knows us by name. The one who hangs the stars in their expanse knows every thought that crosses your mind. He hears your prayers. He answers your prayers. What are we that we would deserve such, such a gracious gift? We see this beauty, this power on display here. We see it clearly in that creation of the stars and the moon and the sun. And we see it furthermore as we get to verses 20 through 23. Where God moves from that, that, that land, or, or rather the expanse, and he speaks of how he will fill the waters and the skies as well. And so we read in verses 20 through 23 how God fills the waters with living creatures. And he fills the skies with birds, with winged creatures. And as the author speaks of the majesty of this, we see him take special note in verse 21. It says, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And in just that passing reference to these great sea creatures, Moses again is, is reminding us how great this creation is. For he's speaking of those great creatures that struck fear in the hearts of the ancient people. You read his name, Leviathan, later on in the Old Testament. And God, too, uses this language, Leviathan, to remind his creation how little we are. Back again in the book of Job, and I encourage you to turn there to see this. In Job 41, God uses the same example of these great sea creatures to put his power on display and speaking to Job in Job 41, beginning in verse 1, as he references that same great creature of the deep, he says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make supplications to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? The book of Job is full of this sort of imagery in which God speaks of these great creatures, creatures that terrify those ancient peoples, and our world indeed is still full of these types of creatures today that far surpass our power, creatures that we still do not yet understand, and yet these creatures are, are God's playthings. These creatures are spoken to existence. These creatures are pets. These creatures again then display his power, his majesty, his wonder, and it is these creatures that fill but the sea and the sky above. And thus we have the fifth day and we then move into that final sixth day where God does not stop with the ocean and the skies, he moves into the land as well. And we read again almost in passing of, of God bringing forth living creatures on the earth, cattle and creeping things, beasts of the earth after their kind. And again, time does not permit us to go into the, the amount of details we could give to this text. But again, like children, we should be struck with a proper sense of awe and wonder as we consider millions upon millions of creatures. As we consider the beauty and complexity of these creatures. 
And as we consider how every single one of them is known by their creator, how every single one of them, as the psalmist in Psalm 104 says, how they come and are fed from the hand of the Almighty. Time and time again with each day then we're given countless reminders of how beautiful of a story this is. Time and time again we're reminded of how powerful this God is, how complex this God is, how beautiful this God is, how great and worthy of worship this God is. Time and time again as we read this story then, we're reminded that we're not simply reading history. We're hearing the song of creation sung for us. And we're being reminded in vivid detail not simply who we are, but who we serve and why we can trust him. We're reminded of the fact that despite our present wilderness, our present wasteland, we know we have a God that can speak and turn it into a paradise. For it's what he has done since the beginning. For in the midst of blackness, in the midst of silence, God speaks and there's light. In the midst of nothingness, God shapes and forms the expanses. In the midst of that expanse, God hangs the stars. He hangs the moon. He hangs the sun. He fills the oceans with millions and millions of creatures. He fills the skies. He fills the lands. And he does so in preparation for his final act of creation that we haven't even touched on yet. That jewel of creation, which is us. For incredibly enough, as we'll get into next time, All of these creatures are first and foremost yes for his glory, but they're prepared for for us. As we read these details, then we're not just deeply humbled, although we are, but, but we're to be incredibly grateful as well. We're to step back and appreciate the beauty of the song as it is being sung. As we do this and as we consider this, the story that came to my mind throughout this last week it's the great story of C.S. Lewis, the magician's nephew. I love that story. It's one of my favorites to still read to my kids today. And I love it largely because of the way that, that C.S. Lewis describes and depicts the act of creation, specifically of Narnia. Towards the end of the book, we read this passage concerning creation. In the midst of darkness, as Diggory and other characters are standing around, we read this. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice began to sing. It was very far away, and and Diggory found it hard to decide which direction it was coming from. Sometimes it seemed to be coming from all directions at once, and sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath him. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words, there was hardly even a tune, but it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly hear it. Later, Lewis writes, two wonders then happened at the same moment. One was that that voice suddenly was joined by other voices, more voices you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up on the scale, cold, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness, next moment a thousand points of light leapt out. Single stars, constellations, planets brighter and bigger than any in our world. There were no clouds. The new stars and the new voices began at exactly the same time. 
And if you had seen and heard it as Diggory did, you would have felt certain that the stars themselves were singing and that the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear, now made them sing. Glory be, said the nearby cabbie. If I had been a better man, or I would have been a better man all my life if I had known there were things like this. This is the response we should have every time we read the story of creation. If we could just catch this glimpse daily of our creator, surely we would be better for it. Surely we would sit in wonder and appreciation of his beauty and his majesty and of the grace he has given us of which we are entirely undeserving. So as we consider all of this and begin to close our time, those of you who have yet put your faith in Christ, those of you who perhaps hold some other story of creation, a story devoid of the creator, let me tell you, just as Moses told those ancient Near Eastern people, that your gods are far too small and pathetic compared to the God of Genesis. Your origin is nothing compared to the origin story here. And your hope is, therefore, nothing compared to the hope that ultimately Genesis inspires. To receive the hope of the believer, however, you need to adopt that faith in this one true God, this one true creator. And so my, my prayer for you this morning, unbeliever, is that you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You would understand your only hope to become a new creation is from his same spoken word. It's from his act of salvation. And so, unbeliever, place your faith in Jesus this morning. If you have any questions, find me afterwards. For my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, let us take time to really observe and appreciate creation around us. Appreciate creation around us. Let us lift our eyes up from our phones once in a while and see the stars in the sky overhead. Let us take a walk outside and see the trees and see the flowers. And let us, in the midst of seeing that, reflect on the glory of our Creator who spoke it into existence. As we're humbled by that, let us strive to trust more in God and remember that He too watches over us and therefore let us live our lives in obedience to Him. I look forward to delving into that final day of creation next time, but for now let's close in prayer and we'll close with one final song. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We thank you for Genesis 1. We thank you for the beauty of these words. God, we cannot be humbled enough by the story of creation. We cannot be awestruck enough by these details, and so we thank you for them. God, as always, I pray for any unbelievers here. God, I pray for their salvation. I pray they might see that their only hope for life is found in you, who is the only giver of life. Save them this morning from brothers and sisters in Christ, might walk away more awestruck and more wonder of you, God. We love you so much. Bless the time as we close now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.